Good evening and welcome to another episode of Boo My Dad Says. My name is John. And I'm Becca. And we're your tour guides through the world of the paranormal. We've got a whole lot of history, a whole lot of mystery, and a whole lot of weird. So sit back, relax, and prepare for a spine-tingling time. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to episode seven of season two of Boo My Dad Says. My name is John, and I am your only host tonight as my better half, Becca, had to uh, miss due to some prior commitments, but these are commitments for, for the greater good, so I can't quite blame her for not being here tonight. So we're going to be dragging out the old 1.0 format of the show out of mothballs, dusting it off, airing it out a little bit, and we'll see if we can still pull this thing off by ourselves. I've, I've gotten so used to having my other half with me that you tend to forget what it's like not um, you know, be, being by yourself. But hey, we will power through and... We will do just fine with this show. So before we jump into the show, we are going to uh, give you a little bit of information about how, how things work here. The, um, we like to do personal stories on this show when we get them in. And if you want to send me your personal story, you can email me at john at boomydadsays.com and we will put your story on the show And you can choose to be anonymous. Just let me know in the email and we will read that off and get your story out there because, you know, we really do like these personal stories because, you know, they have so much feeling to them and a lot of just this raw emotion of, you know, when you experience something that you just don't know what it is. Also, you can check us out on our website at boomydadsays.com and on that website you can listen to our episodes from there and you can find out a little bit more about me and Rebecca so you can check that out or you can follow us on Facebook Instagram and Twitter to uh, follow us on Facebook um, you can look us up we have a a page that you can go to, that's uh, facebook.com slash says, and there's a group inside that page that you can join and have conversation with all of a, these other Boo My Dad Says fans. You can also follow us on Instagram at uh, instagram.com slash says. Find us out there. We post a lot of the same pictures that I post on the group, but, you know, if you just like pictures, hey, there you go. And you can find us on Twitter uh, at Boo My Dad Says. If you'd like to help us support the show, uh, you can go to uh, buymeacoffee.com slash Boo My Dad Says, and you can do a one-time donation that really helps us do things with the show because we like to do contests with our listeners every now and again, and uh, that helps fund those contests. Also, guys, Becca needs a new chair, and (laughs) uh, if y'all could help us out with that, that would be really great. I appreciate it a whole lot. So, tonight's show is 
definitely going to be into the a lot of weird and a whole lot of crazy. And uh, the weird part, the weird story anyways, is I'm going to be talking about the old Ursuline convent. Uh, it's one of the most haunted places in the French Quarter. And then the whole lot of crazy is we're going to be talking about Madame LaLaurie and the LaLaurie Mansion. That lady is crazier than a cat in a room full of rocking chairs. Just let me tell you. But I think we're going to start off with the Ursuline Convent. And it's a, uh, the story is really interesting because this, this is the first time we've actually ever brought up vampires. But it, it's, and this, so it's really linked to some really interesting uh, vampire events, especially with a uh, story of, called The Casket Girls. A little bit of background, the Ursuline nuns were the first women to brave the wilds of the New World, and without them and their influence on the fledgling city of New Orleans, it's difficult to say if the colony would have even survived at all. The uh, churches have existed at the site in the the current convent since 1734. Talk about being uh, around for quite a while. And it's generally, the convent is generally thought to be the oldest building in the region. And over the years, it's served as a shelter, home, and haven for residents of New Orleans. And the Ursulines have been teachers and careers for orphans and the indigenous. In the current day, the convent houses the records of the Catholic diocese, and it's open for tours of the public. But let's just jump back to uh, where I talked about the casket girls, and this is where this weird story comes from. The casket girls, who according to uh, New Orleans folklore, arrived in the city around 1727. uh, These ladies, they were sent to the colony from their native France with the express purpose of becoming wives to the male settlers in the area. These guys, they were like very deeply depressed because there was just not a lot of women around. So I guess this is like the ultimate mail order bride scenario. You know, uh... Kind of think that uh, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers movie. Bless her beautiful heart, wherever she may be. <laughs> uh, we haven't met yet, but I'm willing to bet you're the gal for me. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's not as fun when you don't have your wife here to help sing along with some of these jingles. But anyways, yeah, they, these ladies, they came over from France to essentially marry these lonely men. Uh, you know, because they were so depressed that they couldn't even work. They just sat around, drank, and gambled all the time. You know, and I'm sitting here thinking, like, isn't that what a lot of guys try to do? You know, they get away from their wives and go drink and gamble. Well, these guys were drinking and gambling because they didn't have wives. So that's just kind of funny right there. You know, <laughs> anyway, word got out that all these available young lassies or ladies were arriving, uh, and the men folk, they got all excited, you know, so they started preening down to the docks, you know, uh, you know, being like, mm, look at me and all my manliness. Here is the uh, the the funny part, or I guess it's not really so funny, is you know, they got they were so they got heartbroken because when the boat arrived, they they offloaded from the ship were a bunch of casket shaped boxes. So there were no ladies. So that was just like 
you know, you get your hopes up and then have the the carpet run, uh, drug out from under you. But this is where it gets even weirder because, you know, you think, okay, so something happened and all these ladies died on the voyage. Curious thing is when the priest from the Catholic Church showed up and they collected the caskets saying nothing, only loading them in the back of the cart and taking them back to the Ursuline convent. What these guys did is they kind of went back to their old ways, you know, sad, you know, um, ways, and they basically started drinking, and it turned to despair, and and then it turned to superstition, and before long, these guys were convinced that the caskets were actually housing vampires. Yeah, that's a real logical pre- uh, progression. You know, they take these caskets, and... You know, it's just like, naturally, yeah, there are vampires in those caskets, man. I don't know, Bubba. You really think there's some vampires in those caskets? Yeah, man, what do you think, Roy? I mean, you know, that's, yeah, that's just kind of a, a uh, logical progression there, I guess. So, obviously, meant that this meant that the vampire bodies of their prospective brides are now being housed in the attic of the convent. So, yeah, it just keeps getting better and better. So, these guys, they didn't do anything except just keep telling all these ghostly stories and all these rumors and everything. So, that's just one version of the story. But it gets better. Here's another version of this story. They offloaded the caskets from the ship. The girls were in the caskets, but they were alive. Being ter- they were turning themselves over to the Ursuline nuns to be cared for and, and to help them find suitable husbands. So obviously these guys that were looking for all these women must not have been suitable husbands. But wait, there's more. It just, the stories just keep getting better about this. In a third version of the story, the girls were living when they boarded the ship. But they never made it to New Orleans. Allegedly, they got word of what was waiting for them. I guess all these smelly guys from down New Orleans uh, back then, I don't know. They got off the boat in Baton Rouge. I don't know, guys. What do you think? I mean, this story just really gets out there. So then that's where the left of their own devices, you know, the guys logically went from drinking to vampires. And wait. There's still more. Yet another version of the Casket Girl story suggests that the ship uh, carrying the girls arriving to port, the girls were alive and their caskets, still casket shape, the girls got off in possession of their precious cargo, which actually housed vampires, brought over to the United States from the old world. In this legend, the girls went on to the convent where they were safe. The vampires went out into society where they started new lives and continued on as the living dead, having a wonderful time feeding on the transient population of the area. And then from time to time, these vampires went back to the girls who, in an effort to keep them out of the convent, nailed the attic windows shut. The girls lived out their mortal lives and then passed on to the next world, and well, the vampires being vampires, they're you know they're still having a glorious time partying in the French Quarter. I don't know, guys. That's uh, <laughs> like I said, that's uh, that's a pretty out there story, uh, even for me. Uh, you know, that's definitely uh, one of those crazy things. But you know, there's no way of verifying any of this because the attic 
of the Ursuline convent, convent you can't get up to. They don't allow anybody to get up there because now it was damaged after Hurricane Katrina, and apparently it's so badly damaged that the if you go up there, the structural integrity of the upper four just can't handle it. So there's really no way of checking this store out. So that's our that is our weird. Not really a lot of ghosts in that one. Well, no ghosts at all, but we do have some vampires. Uh, obviously, uh, Transylvania is minus a few uh, lady vampires there. But I don't know where to come down on this. Uh, it's definitely, we know something happened. They were casket-shaped boxes that were offloaded, and there were no ladies. So I'm going to leave that for you all to decide which story you like best, whether it was vampires or the ladies got off the ship in Baton Rouge or they actually died on the trip over. So our next haunted location has to do with Madame Delphine LaLaurie and the LaLaurie Mansion. Let's go back before she was LaLaurie and go back to her childhood and lead into that. Give a little bit of background on this lady because... She she's a different bird, let me tell you. Delphine Lillari was born Marie Delphine McCarty, and she was born on March 19, 1787, to Louis Chevalier Barthelemy de McCarty and Marie Jean Larable. Delphine, she was the member of a very large, wealthy family that had a lot of political power. Her family included military officers, planters, merchants. And they arrived relatively early during the French colonization period. Many of her relatives owned and managed extensive real estate, and they had slaves. As her surname indicates, her family originated in Ireland. Legend has it that the family patriarch fled from Ireland to France to escape the political and religious tyranny imposed by England's monarchs. So I guess they came over from France then to uh, New Orleans. She is the oldest child of Louis and Marie. Even though that she was born in 1787, this is the, an interesting thing. Her baptismal record was not entered into the sacramental register until December 26, 1793, almost five years after her birth. And generally that means in the Catholic Church that they they didn't they usually did this only when an infant in question was close to death. I don't see anything as far as issues from what I can tell about her childhood other than you know she was just uh, I guess entered in their baptismal register at around five years old. We're gonna move ahead to like her teenagers and I guess back in the day she was uh, married at thirteen years old. Can you believe it? On June 11, 1800, Delphine McCarty married Don Ramon de Lopez e Angulo a Carabel. Good night. How, how many last names do you need? <laughs> um, Don Ramon de Lopez e Angulo a Carballero de la Royal de Carlos. Wow, that was a mouthful. He was a high-ranking Spanish officer at the uh, St. Louis Cathedral. Or St. Louis, I guess St. Louis or St. Louis, St. Louis. But some four years later, her and her husband, they traveled to Spain. And there's some different accounts here, but 
somewhere en route between Havana and Madrid, he passed away. So that's husband number one. But while they were on the voyage, she gave birth to a daughter named Marie Borgia Delphine Lopez Angula. You get the picture, guys. But they nicknamed her Boquita. They didn't stay too too long in Spain, and they came back to New Orleans, I guess, where she was thought she was going to be raising her daughter on her own. That was marriage number one, and it, and it doesn't even it doesn't say what he died of, the other than that you know there was just some differing accounts, and that he died on the journey. The uh, second marriage, that's right, marriage number two. Uh, Delphine's second marriage was to. Jean, or I guess Jean, J-E-A-N, so it's Jean, like Jean-Luc Picard. Uh, Jean Blanc, B-L-A-N-Q-U-E. And he was also a man who carried many titles, at least his last name was 25 names long. But he was a banker, a merchant, a lawyer, and a legislator. Wow. <laughs> That guy probably was not a very like guy, if you think about it. He was a politician. He was a lawyer. Now, I don't know if he was a prosecuting lawyer or a defense lawyer. And he was a banker. I mean, that, that was the, at least that's the trifecta right there. You know, I mean, that guy in, in some circles is as close as you can get to being a demon human being. <laughs> they wed in June of 1808. And after the union, Jean Blanc bought some property with a house on it at 409 Royal Street. And during her marriage to Blanc, Delphine gave birth to four more kids. Marie, another Marie. What was it? Huh, yeah, another Marie. Marie Louis Pauline. Louis Marine Laurie. Marie Louis Jean. Okay, so Marie, we got some kind of, uh, yeah, and Jean-Pierre Holland Blank. Unfortunately, tragedy struck again, and he died, her husband died in 1816. All right, so now we're on to marriage number three. This is her third and final marriage, and this happened in 1825. Leonard Louis Nicholas Lalaurie was a transplant from France, and he was a physician, though today he would probably have been considered more of a chiropractor. And their meaning was not pure luck. One of Delphine's daughters from her second marriage had some deformities along her spine and was subsequently ill. So they hired him to cure the girl. Louis Lalaurie used all sorts of medical equipment that looked quite torturous. Delphine's daughter did not get better, but Delphine was enamored with the physician, even though she was nearly 20 years older. Yeah, that's, that's, that's some scandal there. But some letters show that LaLaurie had departed from New Orleans for France and that it was his brother who had persuaded him to return because, after all, Louis had impregnated Delphine. Yeah, there we go. All these illegitimate children. <laughs> Because, uh, see, when there was, yeah, there was uh, some bon chicky want while going on last week with our, uh, with Caroline in the, uh, the in the Le Petit, and now we got uh, Madame Delphine and Lalari. But doing the honorable thing, there was nothing left for him to do but to marry her. Moving on, in 1831, 
they um, purchased the property at 1140 Royal Street. And this is where the mansion in question that we are going to be talking about is located. And this is where they would live. She would live with her and Lilari and, and two of her children. But the marriage was not a happy one. Trouble in paradise, ladies and gentlemen. Marriage number three. Neighbors overheard the couple arguing profusely, and it was almost unsurprising to them that when Louis LaLaurie packed his bags and moved out sometime in the early months of 1834, losing her husband purportedly drove her mad. And rumors seemed to spread that she was harming her slaves And after an incident in 1933 when a young slave girl within the household fell to her death in the courtyard, a lot of eyes was turned upon Marie Delphine McCarty LaLaurie. Man, these names. So there was a council that was held, and they they did this investigation, and all of her slaves were set free because I guess apparently she was being pretty cruel to them, and New Orleans... If I, in some of my research, you know, if you were being cruel, they, they would take, well, look right here, as they took her slaves and they set them free. But one by one, Delphine purchased them back. Now, I heard another account where they took her slaves away from her and she couldn't purchase them back, but a friend of hers purchased them back for her. So that's another story, uh, another twist on the story here is that another Uh, A friend of hers purchased her slaves back and then gave them back to her. I mean, what the heck? I mean, they were taken for a reason. I mean, but anyways, things kind of quieted down until a faithful night in 1834. And that is when a fire had broken out in the... uh, this the Laurie mansion. The uh, the fire destroyed part of the house and brought to light that there were seven slaves that were starved, tortured, and chained in the upper part of the building. I mean, really cruel treatment. The nearly helpless were carried to the Cabildo where they received medical treatment, food, and drink. And then, but this totally incensed the town people about how how she had treated these slaves, and I and I can't blame them. I mean, well, slavery is wrong in the first place, but you know, it, it sounds like you know New Orleans in general. You know, even though they had slaves, they tried to treat them treat them well, but it's still slavery, guys. Come on. Um, but, yeah, the townspeople were incensed. They, I mean, they were just so appalled by the wretched sight before them that they began gathering at the LaLaurie mansion in the expectation that the sheriff was going to come and arrest Delphine, but the sheriff never arrived. Now, I don't know what the deal is with that, but he didn't show up. So as the day went on, it came from a group of people that was just waiting to see what happened until it turned into a just mob, and they had one thing on their mind, vengeance. When Madame Mallory, though she had managed to escape the fray, and the enraged crowd attacked the now empty residence, and they pretty much demolished the place, what was left of it after the fire, 
They stripped the interior of all of its valuables and con- and then uh, continued their assault by trying to dismantle the whole house by damaging the walls and the roof. By the next morning, they had almost demolished the entire house. The fire was ignited in the kitchen of this mansion, and allegedly it was started by a slave woman who was chained to the stove as punishment. The fire seemed to be an attempt to try to call attention to the deplorable conditions that uh, her fellow slaves endured. Now, we're going to jump off, and this is, we're going to like jump off here into the the weird side of things a little bit. I gave you what, from what I can tell, appears to be the most truthful part of the account. But let's jump into a little bit of the sensationalized part of this story. And that is about as far as like the treatment of the slaves. The We're talking some very crazy treatment. Um, they said that one slave had their bones broken numerous times, and then, the, and then the bones were set in unnatural positions so that when she moved, her, land, her limbs remained crooked and bent, and her gait was, was reminiscent of a crab's. Whew. That's just wicked, ma'am. Now, another slave, they said... Uh, had a hole drilled into his head with a wooden spoon sticking out in an obvious attempt to stir the brains of this poor soul. Allegedly, another person had their skin pulled back to expose the tissue and muscle to the naked eye. The story also claims that another slave had his intestines removed from his body and wrapped around his naked waist and others were covered with honey and black ants and just lived in torture. Now, from all in, for all intents and purposes, from some of the stuff I've read, this is too sensational to have been real. But as stories tend to move around over the years, sometimes they just seem to get bigger and bigger. And that's what's happened here. But there was no true evidence of that in any of the newspapers of the time. The, uh, the closest thing that, was, that could even be meant to make this seem true was the uh, newspaper, I believe it was the New Orleans Bee. And they're the only ones that mentioned torture in their article about this event but there's definitely no argument with that the slaves were very badly mistreated uh starved things like that but some of these other things i mean that that just borderlines modern day horror movies psychotic now in case you're wondering what happened to uh, madame delphine lalari after the fire she got away with it. She left New Orleans on a ship and went back to Paris. 
How this happened, I'll never know. How did she get away? That I find incredibly amazing. Because you consider the fact there was a huge mob there, enough to destroy her house, and yet she was still able to get away. I'm just totally blown away with that. But yes, she was in Paris until her death. At least that is one story. Some say she secretly came back to New Orleans and under an assumed name. The evidence shows that she died in Paris, France on December the 7th, 1849. There is one little weird twist there, though. In the late 1930s, a Eugene Bacchus, who served as sexton to St. Louis Cemetery Number 1, discovered an old cracked copper plate in Alley 4 of the cemetery. And the description read, and this is in French, so this is going to be... Um, this is gonna be butchered, but it says Madame Lalaurie Nemoi Delphine McCarty décédé à Paris le décembre eight seven décembre eighteen forty two. So that plate, what I just read, translates the English translation says. Madame LaLaurie, born Marie Delphine McCarty, died in Paris December 7th, 1842. That goes against what was said a little bit ago because I had said that it was December 7th, 1849. That's what, at least that's what the French archives in Paris has her date of death as. Who knows what she, how she really, when she really died. So now let's move on to the hauntings of the Lalari Mansion, some ghostly happenings. For almost 200 years, there have been reports of paranormal activity coming from this house. And it shouldn't surprise many that there are a lot of hauntings attributed to, to the slaves that Madame Lalari kept on the property. There is a room in the Lalari Mansion where slaves were often kept, and reports of moaning are come from that room are common. And that would make sense considering how she treated her slaves. I could definitely see the uh, the moaning there, and I totally believe it. Phantom footsteps echo through the house with regularity, and many people who have stood near the house have reported feelings as if they were being they were taken over by very negative energy. But there is more that has happened in this house, more than just what happened to these slaves. What the house was rebuilt, and in 1894, this house had, well, just a little before that, the house had been converted into an, um, I guess, an apartment's. And in 1894, a tenant who lived in the Lalari mansion was brutally murdered in his room. They found his belongings ransacked as if somebody had gone through them, and the police assumed that, the that he was a victim of robbery, even though nothing of value was found missing. But an interesting account regarding this murder deals with the police interviewing the neighbors about this guy's disappearance. One of his friends claimed that he was having problems with sprites in his house. His friend wrote it off as, you know, just 
you know, this guy's imagination running wild with him. But he did say something interesting. He claimed that his friend told him that there was a demon in that house who was not going to rest until he had met his end. At that point, if I had come to the realization that there was a demon in a place and his goal or its goal was to kill me, I would have left. You know, that's just me. I guess some people just just don't want to uh, get out of a place. Now, later on, it was converted into a school for girls. The LaLaurie Mansion, for a very brief time, was a school for all girls during the mid to late 19th century. And at first, it was it had been one of the few mixed schools in the city of New Orleans. But politics during the Reconstruction era were convoluted, and surely enough, soon after, the school at 1140 Royal, Royal Street was converted into a strictly an all-girls African-American primary school. I'm sorry. I mean, consi- that's, just, that's just bad. Considering what happened in that house, and they turn it into an all-African-American primary school, to me, that just seems mean. Because within a short amount of time, reports of physical assaults came to light. Uh, we know that young girls would approach their teachers with tears streaking down their faces and with their sleeves rolled up and the, the exposed flesh of their forearms showed scratch, was scratched and bruised. And the teachers would ask them, who did this to you? And the, and, and the girls would always say, that woman. I guess, you know, I'm making an assumption that maybe that was the spirit of Madame Delphine. And these girls were young enough to probably not be aware of the uh, tragedy that had happened decades earlier. Moreover, it was unlikely that the teachers themselves would tell six, seven, or eight-year-olds about the starvation and immoral torture of slaves some decades before. Was was her ghost responsible for the scratches, or was it something else entirely? In a more modern-day setting, there was a ghost tour, and, and I found this this uh, some of this information was on Ghost City Tours. The, I like using them for research because they do such a wonderful job. Um, there was a psychic medium who went on one of the tours. When she came to the mansion, I mean, she just sucked in a deep breath and said, there's just such sadness here. She just kind of rocked back on her heels. It was so overwhelming. And then the next in the next few minutes, the medium experienced a very heavy emotion-like weight that had been settled down upon her so- shoulders. She had sensed the spirit of a young boy who liked to play pranks on the living and the spirit of a little girl who was often very nervous. They they asked her, did she feel any helplessness or anger? And she replied, no. She said, whatever happened then with LaLaurie does not visit the house any longer. But she could certainly sense where, remember the first story about the little girl who fell to her death? And that's what had kind of started cluing people in that there was some cruelty going on. Uh, she asked if that if she pointed to a window that had been bricked up, and she had asked if that was like the window where the girl had fell, fallen out. You know, and the tour guide had not even gotten to that point. Also, another another thing that happened to one of their tour guides was they were 
doing a tour one night, the tour guide felt a tug on her shoulder, and she'd stopped the mid of her the mid her story and twisted look to see that she, maybe she'd find a pickpocket or something who was trying to steal her bag because they she'd had a bag on, and there was a tug. So she turned, looked, and there was nobody there. So she got back into character and continued on with the tour. And no less than 10 seconds later, she felt the tug again, and this time harder. And she whipped around, and there was nobody there. So I guess this might be that little boy ghost who liked to, to play prank. And she had told her tour what had happened, and their faces were just, like, priceless. The looks on their faces of what she said. Then two weeks later after that, at the corner of Governor Nichols and Royer Street, the guy was out on the streets again, bringing in another tour around. And the LaLaurie Mansion, of course, was the big hit because, I mean, you know, this what happened. She had positioned her group under a set of street lamps that had been burned out for weeks. She launched into the story, but the minute she said the name Leah, the lamps flickered on. Everyone in the group paused, a few yelping in delight. And then the guide went, guide went on with the show, and when she said the name Leia again, the same lamps blew out. Was the ghost of Leia still there, uh, waiting for the to be mentioned? I don't know. And I think Leia was actually the name of the little girl who had fallen out the window. A couple of other weird things as far as this uh, of the, as the mansion. You know, it has been sold off several times over the centuries. Uh, you know, it was an apartment building. It was a girls' school. At one point, it was owned by actor Nicolas Cage in 2009. And then he lost it because of bankruptcy. But the weird thing is, is nobody has lived at 1140 Royal Street or the LaLaurie Mansion for more than five years. So obviously, that is uh, very telling that maybe there is even a curse upon this house. Well, folks, we have come to the end of our tour of Haunted New Orleans, and I believe we could probably squeeze two or three more episodes out of this city and still maybe not cover it all. But I think it's time that we move on to other locations to see what kind of spooks, specters, or cryptids, or UFOs, anything like that we can find. I think what we may be doing next, though, is the Mandela Effect. And then another episode we may have coming up is uh, looking at Bobby Mackey's Music World. And that is uh, rumored to be one of the most haunted nightclubs in America. And so I'm going to be digging into that here in the upcoming weeks. But I think the Mandela Effect is going to be our next episode after uh, New Orleans. So uh, I'll give you all something to look forward to. If you uh, like our show, guys, you know, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Because that really helps us out when they have this algorithm that the more reviews that you get, actually, you, you know, you go in into the podcast, you give us a star rating, and then you hit re review, and you write something in there, and you save it 
that the more of those you get, the, the more it bumps us up into the search results. And I, you know, I'm really hoping that we can get the uh, boom. My dad says podcast up there as, you know, one of the best podcasts out there because I really believe in the show and I'm, I've really enjoyed doing this with you guys. You know, and a couple of the podcasts I want to mention out there as that I really like to listen to. And if you like, you know, the paranormal shows, uh, look up History Goes Bump. That is a really good podcast. It's very similar to Boo My Dad Says in the lines where it goes into the history of a location and they talk about the hauntings. Another good one is Hillbilly Horror Stories. You know, give those guys a uh, a listen. They're they can be really funny. Jerry and Tracy Polly, they are they're a husband and wife team, and they um, they they and their dog Ninja. <laughs> they can be uh, really funny. And then I also like uh, Graveyard Tales, and those two guys there they are about as country as they get. And just sound like a bunch of couple of good old boys, and they do a really great show. So there's your three other shows that you can uh, listen to. And also, don't forget my good friend JT over at the Paranormal Sun. And JT, he is from New Zealand, and he does a really good show. His last few weeks, he has been going over the UFO files that was released from the CIA uh, just about a month or two ago. And he's done like a seven-part series of some of these uh, records that has been released. And it's a pretty interesting uh, bit of information. So go check him out, too. Well, guys, I hope you all have a, a great rest of your week. And we will be seeing you all next Wednesday night, as always. I appreciate you all, and good night, and God bless, my friends.